Just a quick note before jumping into today's podcast, the Flip Learning Network is a non-profit and we are always looking for support from our community. There are many options to support us. Please ask us on social media or check out our page at fliplearning.org slash support FLN. We have a Patreon set up. We can accept donations via PayPal. We have an Amazon affiliate link and some other options through sponsorship links on the website. Welcome to this episode of Ask the Flip Learning Network, where the Flip Learning Network um, joins Ken basically hanging out and talking with other people in the community. Um, recently, I've been inviting a lot of people that I've been meeting through other projects like Virtually Connecting and Open Education. And I've known Chris's work through both of those domains. Uh, we've never got a chance to meet up in person but we've done quite a bit of uh, sessions through virtually connecting, which I've talked often about. And Chris is headed off to Victoria next week. So I totally messed up and thought we were recording next week, but we're doing it this week and, and it all works out fine. So um, welcome, Chris. Why don't you give the, the audience a background of, of where you're from and what you're working on these days? Thanks. Um, thanks for having me on, Ken. Um, well, my name is Chris Gilliard. I'm a, a professor of English. I teach at a, a community college in a suburban Detroit called Macomb Community College. Um, so what I'm really interested in uh, is uh, typically issues about student data privacy, uh, surveillance, uh, digital redlining. Um, I've also lately been doing some stuff uh, about, uh, about uh, things like uh, Amazon's uh, foray into the surveillance uh, extra extraction economy and um, also, I've uh, been doing some stuff too about uh, facial recognition um, and seeing how that uh, affects um, marginalized communities. Right on. Um, so, I, I one, one thing that happened in my courses recently, I, I had this course that was called Digital um, Cities, and then I decided to screw that and I, I renamed it Digital Citizens because I, I thought we should have more of that focus. And I pinged you a whole bunch during that semester, probably too much. But um, why don't you give our audience, because I don't think everyone's going to know what what digital redlining is. So, um, uh, well, I guess I should ask how, how you know. Do you want the, the the quick and dirty version or the longer version? Well, let's oh. start quick and dirty and then go into the long one because I'm interested in that, Chris. I'm interested a lot in in data surveillance. We've had recent issues come up with uh, was it uh, is it turn it in? Is it that the mm -hmm. right? Um, there's also, uh, it's not the one we're using at our institution, but I've, we've had the Turnitin sale recently. Um, there's been a lot of announcements of Canvas and they're uh, pivoting to uh, monetizing or, or going into that area of, of using all the student data they had. And I just saw a report come out and they were right up at the top and my institution's using Canvas. So why don't we start with a short and then kind of dig into a little bit more on digital redlining and maybe the privacy issues that we're we're discussing recently. Yeah, so um, the quick version is uh, I, the way I, I refer to it, the way I use it, is the, the ways the um, technology policies, practices, or pedagogy um, that, you know, decision-making that uh, adversely affect uh, marginalized groups. Um, and so a way we might think of that is, is uh, say, a classroom practice that um, dictates students uh, have a certain kind of um that the in order to do their work they would need to have a certain kind of internet access um, right or device yeah exactly um and so not everyone has the same kind of access 
And so just by that, you know, pedagogy decision, you're um, adversely affecting certain populations. So do you, do you think, I mean, we're not evil, we're not evil teachers. So how, how often is this just that people aren't thinking about it or they're privileged and they're assume it, or sometimes teachers just, they're just struggling to use some of these tools. They're getting thrown into an LMS and it's not their decision. Um, but I'd also push back on some of us faculty that even though it might not necessarily be our choice of which tools we're using, we should be doing a little bit pushback on this to our administration. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I've been lucky enough to do lots of speaking on this topic uh, in the last few years. Uh, in my personal experience, you know, anecdotally, uh, lots of people just don't know, um, mm -hmm. I think the the myth of access is is much more powerful than the reality uh, when we're talking about internet uh, and broadband and even you know technology you know for like instance like who has a smartphone and how do they use it and what's it for things like that right. um I, so there's a, a prevailing myth and i think companies and ed tech companies and, and platforms have an interest and investment in in having us all believe that and unless you drill down into it, which frankly, not a lot of people have the time or energy to do, uh, mm -hmm. unless you drill down into that, um, you know, it's pretty easy to accept. Like, I mean, most of our students, you know, if you look, like everyone has a smartphone, you know, right. um, most of our students do probably, uh, but, you know, that in itself doesn't indicate the same kinds of um, things for everybody, you know, so it's pretty easy, you know, and I don't. I don't um, blame uh, instructors at all for thinking that way, um, but I, I do encourage uh, those who do to, to dig a little bit deeper. Right. I mean, they might, they might even be walking around with a smartphone, but they're running around looking for a Wi-Fi connection because they don't <laughs> exactly. have data, right? Exactly. And sometimes we forget that, those that, us, that are privileged with an unlimited or a, or a large plan. I had my, my first experience of killing all my data because I... I'm going to blame Terry Green because for some reason I subscribed <laughs> to his podcast and I hit the download button and we walked out of our hotel and then it downloaded like every single episode of Get in Air over my, <laughs> over my data plan and I capped it. Um, so I don't have unlimited, but I yeah. with my first experience. So I spent two weeks with no data, um, which was actually a pretty, um, it was a pretty good exercise in, in realizing what it's like to walk around without data and looking for Wi-Fi everywhere. Right. Yeah. And that precarious position is some is something that lots of people find themselves in all the time. Uh, you know, often, again, students are, are sharing their data plans with family members. Um, you know, they're required. Lots of them don't have tablets or, or a laptop. So they're required to do kind of everything on that device. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so um, and, and to your other point, I mean, I do think uh, administrators especially uh, I think it's, I mean, I might argue it's even more their job to know things like this, mm -hmm. um, which which they often don't either. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd like more people to, to pay attention to that. Okay, cool. What about, um, I'm also going to put in the show notes because I was really happy that Chris was in my earbuds when uh, an episode of CBC Spark uh, played his work. Um, so we can get a lot more about digital redlining from there. But um, you're teaching English, Chris. I know we before the show, we're talking about that you're doing an online course right now. Um, 
what kind of tools or, or what kind of what kind of tips can you give to me? I'm going to be selfish because I'm going to give an online <laughs> course. To, <laughs> we'll put this down. Maybe I'll have to edit some of this out because uh, I didn't prepare you for it. But how do we how do we wrap our head around this fact that not everyone has necessarily the connectivity that we have or access to the tools or, or even not even just access, um, knowing how to use these tools because sometimes we throw so many at them and there's such cognitive load and we're just one course among many that they're teaching plus their one or two jobs and family and everything else. Um, how, do we, how do we connect with our students online that's different than what for many of us is the normal of seeing them in person once or twice a week? Yeah, this is an interesting question and one, you know, I consistently struggle with, you know, I mean, part of the way I came to some of these realizations is, is um, in my teaching, you know, so for instance, um, I talked to someone who's a, a uh, uh, instructional technologist, and this person advocated doing video conferences with every student, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try that. Right, yeah. <laughs> And it was a complete disaster, total failure. It didn't work at all. <laughs> um, and the main reason, well, there were two main reasons. Um, my students, and, and you know, I don't necessarily want to generalize, but a lot of my students, but I would, I would, I would believe that this might be the case for other for other folks as well. The reason they were taking an online composition class is because they had so many other things going on. You right. Know? kids job or multiple jobs you know, Parents, other classes everything. you know you name it and so for them to find uh free time you know and i, I put that in quotation marks but right. for them to find like uninterrupted time where a they chunk of time talk, to talk with chris yeah where they could sit and talk with the professor even five minutes like for me and my students that's just an unrealistic expectation you know right so they were cooking dinner or you know taking care of their kids or you know trying to do, trying to hold the conference in a coffee house or, 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 you know, uh -huh. um, and, you know, and, and again, trying to do that in a coffee house speaks to some of the broadband well, issues exactly. as well. Uh, it was a disaster. Um, and the other, the other, so I'm, I'm talking about my failure as a way no. to. <laughs> no, and then we need to embrace failure. Because I think <laughs> this, this is so good. And, and I think that's about our privilege that, even scheduling these podcasts, I'm like, I set out, okay, here's the scheduling system you can, but some people can't even plan today, let alone tomorrow. Or right. Next week. right. And the other thing is lots of my students, and I, and I say this um, with no, in no way trying to diminish them, but lots of them were not familiar with the technology. Mm -hmm. Where are you at video conference? I mean, some of them have laptops, but I've never used the cameras. Right. You know, like all kinds of things like that. So even that, even those assumptions about who knows who has what tech and how to use it, you know, is something I really had to um, reinvestigate uh, as I did that. Um, and so when we think about how to engage, um, you know, we got to take those things into account. Um, so uh, my a, a way I like to think about it. Um, is we kind of have to uh, figure out what's available to people, but also do things um, like if you make videos, make like short videos and provide yeah. transcripts to them, you know, things like that, so that um, people who don't have the same kinds of access or, or uh, opportunities to, to sit down and, and watch something um, can still access it. Um, 
or you know and make yourself available in in multiple ways you know um that's another thing i I think that's pretty important but uh composition classes i mean i've never taught um have i i've never taught something that wasn't composition online okay but i do think composition poses some unique problems or you know like first year composition poses some unique problems um that you not you wouldn't necessarily encounter in other classes right this is so this whole juggling so much time and, and struggling with the tech and then so i don't teach composition so i'm just making this stuff up based on what i know um how 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 much success can you have on drafts and multiple versions before final? Because that's what you <laughs> ideally want and feedback and peer feedback and all these wonderful yeah. Santa Claus lists we could make of how to do it right. But how does it actually work? Right. Well, you know, in my ideal world, um, a composition courses would occur over a, a span of time, a longer span of time, mm-hmm. and the classes would be smaller, you know, and they would work like a writing workshop. I mean, my mm-hmm. pretty firm belief about how writing gets done is you need time to think about it, mm-hmm. you need time to draft, um, you need uh, time, you know, if you're teaching it, you need time to teach students how to how to um, draft and revise and respond to other people's drafts. You need to build trust in each other, yep. um, you know, establish some kind of relationship. You need to figure out your own writing process, um, you know, and again, a lot of those things, especially, I mean, so there's some administrative reasons why an online class or why a class in general would occur over a mm-hmm. shortened period of time. But the, and so those administrative reasons were not optimized for, for a writing class. Right. Uh, and again, I've, I've talked to other teachers where this is also true, but um, writing, the particular thing about writing that I would say is different is that um, in order that, that, that process I, inv- I, I, I talked about, um, about writing, uh, I mean, there's no way to to make that shorter. Right. You know, like the draft, revise, feedback, revise, feedback. You know, and so on. Um, that how many, that, how many that weeks are these time. courses, Chris? How, how uh, long? Our onlines are eight weeks. Wow, because yeah. I don't teach our summer sessions here. One, because I'm privileged and I can say, screw it, I don't want to. But there are these five week intense courses where we're cramming 16 weeks into it. Yeah. And even on, on my topic, not writing, but I think any subject, you need to kind of like plant something in your head and let it stew around for a bit. And you can't just cram it all into a short time. So exactly. And then online. Um, so how, how are you making it better? And you also talk about, and, and I'm in a, in a course right now with Howard Rheingold and some other people we know. Um, and we're talking about that you need to build trust with your students to, to, to work on their habits of studying and writing and, and um, making it a short time spans hard, making it online's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on not just trust with you, but trust with their classmates? Because I'm, I'm wondering if your, your students even physically know other people that are in the class or how that works. Often not. Uh, you know, and again, um, and so here's, you know, uh, I'm going to, this might get me into trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I can edit it out or Um, not. But here's, uh, here's a a thing. Um, and I, I've, I've had access to people who I would consider expert online teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had long conversations with them 
with instructional technologists. I mean, I've been doing this myself for over 20 years. But I'll, I'm going to explain a scenario to you and okay. one that, uh, well, it'll become obvious in a second. So I teach in a computer lab. Mm -hmm. And often I have students do work um, in class. And so, you know, often um, it might be some discrete um, piece of writing, like write this paragraph or write this paragraph or something like that. And so I walk around the room and I look over a student's shoulder and say, oh, that's interesting. You know, why did you make that choice or something like that? Mm -hmm. And they say, well, I was thinking about it this way. And I say, oh, OK, well, you know, that's great. Like, maybe consider this, too. Or mm -hmm. like, here's how I might think about it or something like that. OK, mm -hmm. so that exchange takes five minutes, you know, um, in all my years of teaching. I've never had a student not respond to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I've never looked over a student's shoulder or kneeled down next to them and said, oh, that's interesting. Why did you do that? You know, or can you tell me a little bit more about this? I've never had them not answer. Mm -hmm. um, I pretty firmly believe that 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 exchange, that there's some learning going on in that exchange. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, so if it takes five minutes, I can do that, uh, you know, yeah. um, mm -hmm. 15 times, 20 times in a, in a class. Right. Uh, now, let's switch that to online. Exactly. <laughs> so I have them do a discrete piece of writing, and I look at it, and I email them back and say, oh, that's interesting. You know, can you tell me a little bit more about this? And then okay, hours now. or days later. <laughs> right. The, the lag off. is what kills you, right? It's <laughs> not your internet pipe, it's the lag. Yeah. Now, first off, they're totally free to not respond. Right. Um, now, and again, like I can attach points to it and things like that, but there's some issues with that and problems with that. Um, but in, in, a, in, a, in a physical setting, they're also free to not respond, but it's seen differently. So someone, right. if you kneel down next to them and start talking to them, you know, I mean, like literally thousands of students at this point and no one's ever not answered. Right. Um, because it's seen as a different kind of act than mm -hmm. if it's online. Like we're used mm -hmm. to ignoring people online. Um, but even if they do, okay, even if they respond immediately, which doesn't happen very often, um, that back and forth exchange that I talked about that happens in five minutes in a classroom, uh, even if it happens ideally, might take hours or days online. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to fix that. And we lose and we lose track of the conversation. Um, yeah, because we're in. That's that's fascinating. Because I I love that, Chris. And 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 the, the podcast is ostensibly about flip learning. And one of the powers for me, the most important thing about flipping learning is that I don't lecture in class. I'm I'm walking around, like you say, mm -hmm. sitting down with all my students. Which one we have those really quick conversations. Um, that are triggered by some other factor that we notice or they notice. Yeah. We get to know our students. We build the trust with them. Right. Um, I remember their name 10 years later and they don't know how I remember their name. It's because I spent time with them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that how to get like, like we have, like I've never met you in person, but we've had enough conversations that um, over and again, it's over a long period of time. It's a tweet here. It's a tweet there. It's a virtually connecting session in one point. It's watching your keynote. And then I'm connecting to you through that keynote that I've watched, but you're not to me. And 
there's all these signals that are going on, but they're over a long period of time. Yeah. And in class, we can happen, that can happen in seconds, not even minutes. Right, right. So how do we, and nobody has been able to, (laughs) no one's been able to answer that question for me in a satisfactory manner, you know? And so I'm not saying that there is not ways to, to build um, trust with students online. Like, I'm not saying that you can't create relationships or you can't have those discrete moments of learning. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you can't do them. <laughs> like, I mean, frankly, like, uh, I, I mean, I, I, you can't do them as quickly. No, um, not as quickly. And even, even seeing us right now, I'm getting more information from you from what's going on in the background of your video feed, right? There's no, there's nobody walking by or anything. But I'm getting a more personal connection than you are to me because I'm in some phone booth, audio phone place. With yeah. a white wall behind me, you have no information <laughs> about my surrounding. And actually, there's one thing I've been thinking about. And I've talked to other people is um, having kind of a personal space around you of where you're doing your sessions as a teacher can really help the students to get a little bit of a, a connection to you. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm thinking hard about how to to get to know my students, but also let them get to know me online. I think that's probably important too. Yeah. And so that's the thing, when you combine the limitations of online with the, the limitations, and I don't, that's not the right word, that's the word that's coming to me right now, but the limitations that students have in terms of access and time, right. technology. Lack of affordances. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Better word. Um, those things, when you stack them all up, uh, make for a much more difficult um, situation to navigate. Um, and I'm still working on how to how to do that better, you know. I, I, I and I mean in the same way I'm try I try to do my own you know in person classroom better, but I I think I have that one better figured out than I do the online. And I, and again, like, as I've said, I mean you know the network that we have, and I have posed this question to dozens, if not hundreds, of people. No one's ever given me an answer that I love. You know, say, oh, okay, yeah, that's it. That's the secret. I don't think there's a simple solution. And, and, and I don't, and just like every one of our students inside our physical classroom has different needs and we can't pigeonhole them into the same categories. And, oh, you didn't do your homework. It's because you're lazy and we're playing video games all night. No, it wasn't. It's because she was taking care of her sick mom yeah. or, or whatever's going on. We can't, um, we can't, put a same size solution on each one of our students in our classrooms either. And online, I think really we're missing more clues about what's going on mm-hmm. because we don't have that same immediacy and yeah. a 360 degree awareness. As I'm talking to someone else, I can hear what's going on behind me yeah. and there might be an interesting conversation that I'm going to make sure I'm going to go that way instead of the other direction I was walking around the classroom. And here's the other thing, right? Layered on top of all that, is that so many of the tools that we might use to make those interactions easier are, you know, data gobbling, extractive, you know, monsters. Well, yes. Right? So, like... <laughs> and we don't even think about it, Chris. I mean, getting back to it again, I don't think it's because someone's bad. I, I think it's because um, a lot of these tools we use because they're so easy to use. And so here's my rail about WhatsApp, which Facebook bought. And... and 
it's probably not as popular there, but in Mexico, it's like, it's unavoidable. I had my February without Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram. And I disconnected myself. The Taekwondo instructor for my son said, what's wrong? Why did you leave our group? I said, well, it's not personal. <laughs> I just left all groups because I totally disconnected. Yeah. Um, but I, I was talking to faculty and they said, well, one good way to make sure you're staying in touch with students is, and they're kind of right. You go to what they're already using. They're all using WhatsApp. So we'll make a WhatsApp group for all the students in this degree mm -hmm. program. I said, wait a minute. Wait a yeah. minute, you're, you're publishing everybody's <laughs> phone number. This 18-year-old right. girl's phone number has been broadcasted to all these other dudes that she doesn't want to share her phone number with. And, mm -hmm. and the faculty, his answer was, well, I've never had a problem with it. And I said, well, well, you haven't. And, and you might not have heard about it, but all sorts of bad things could have or would have happened because yeah. we're enabling the use of these tools and, and uh, not just to pick on WhatsApp, but I will because it's Facebook, but there's all these other tools that we have the data issues, but also have the um, creating too many channels and, and cognitively overloading our students with, oh, you got to install Slack. You got to install Facebook Messenger. You got to install WhatsApp. You got to install this and that and, and the right. other thing. So um, do students even care though? I mean, you and I talk about this so much. Other faculty look at me at least and call me crazy when I ask about where's the uh, opt-out policy for Canvas data yeah. feed. Um, do students care about this? So you, you've you uh, touched upon, and I, I'm, I'm sure you probably did this intentionally, you touched oh, upon yes. like a, an exposed nerve. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so A, yes, they do, right? I mean, you can't, I can't speak across the board, um, right. but uh, the idea that students don't care about these things is, again, I think a myth yep. perpetuated by the people who want students not to care and want us not to care. Right. Um, but the other thing is, like, that's an easy out for, I think, some laziness and bad practices on the part of, um, or malice in some cases, mm -hmm. I mean, to be honest, on the part of teachers and administrators and institutions. So, like, you know, to 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 use a, a very a basic example, like if I teach a, a history class, you know, and at the start of the, the semester, I ask my students, do you care about the Civil War? Right. <laughs> do you care about <laughs> no, not at all. no, right? <laughs> but I've been just say, oh, OK, you folks at the end of the semester, right? just yeah. throw up my hands. Right? Like, that's actually well, not what well, teaching is. Right? Well, it also gets back to the point of trust. We can't ask those questions. We <laughs> don't trust. <laughs> I mean, so part of the reason, you know, that I like students, so students and a lot of other folks don't know the extent to which uh, right. these bad practices are being uh, deployed against. Right. So, like, a, a super basic thing is if you show students how to look at Google Maps in their phone in the way that, um, or just your iPhone in general, the way it tracks all mm -hmm. your locations for like yep. an extended period of time. So most, like, most of them don't even know that exists. Yeah, a lot of people have never seen that. They're like, whoa, it was <laughs> right. last week. What? Yeah. Right? And so when they see that, it sort of like um, flips a switch for them, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you talk about the ways that narratives about them are being created you know, by companies, that then their professors will have a certain idea of them or come or mm -hmm. their future potential employers might have, you know, mm -hmm. an idea about them that it'll affect um, 
how they get, you know, whether or not they get a loan for a car or a house, like what in what college they might be able to go to, like where, you know, what kind of job they might get. Um, so when you talk about those things, if they didn't care before, they yeah. start to care. Um, because they didn't have the data. Yeah, yeah. Everyone so, else had their data, but they didn't. Right, right. So it, that is a thing um, that really, you know, it really gets me because, mm-hmm. um, you know, like they are, students are free not to care, um, but it's our job to like, uh, to help them through some of this information. Mm-hmm. And if they want to not care after that, that's up to them. They're adults right. or my students are adults. Um, but they're they're free not to care, um, armed with with a little bit more knowledge than they had before, right. um, and so they are able to make some choices in ways that they weren't um, to um, up leading up till then. Right. Um, and besides that, and and again, like some people may not like this language, but as an instructor, I'm charged with caring about them. Yes. Um, and to the extent that I know some things they don't, you know, or I, um, you know, like, again, as adults, right, I, if I look at them as adults, like, they are charged with making the best decision for themselves. Mm-hmm. But there are decisions as the teacher that I make about how the classroom operates, right? right. That um, sometimes I need to um, make the decisions I think are better to create a good climate in the classroom, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to that extent, like, I need to make choices that I think are better for the students. And I want to be very careful about how I say that because right. it can come a- across as being paternalistic, you know. Um, but that might just be like, um, you know, like there's accessibility questions. There's uh, safety questions. Right. Um, there are, and those are decisions. Some of those I'm going to need to make with students. Right. Um, but because I don't know who I have until... Um, I get into the class, some of those, at least, you know, provisionally, I'll need to make for students. Right. Um, and, and those decisions you make about accessibility don't just affect the students that need that accessibility decision, but it affects all. Right. And they need to be aware of it. Right. So, I, you know, I don't, if someone says students don't care, I kind of <laughs> get a little charged (laughs) as you should and and i think you touched a good point there that i mean you're teaching composition i'm teaching computer science where we're supposed to just get them to build robots that are going to fly over us and attack us Um, (laughs) and and all the tech stuff and the embrace of tech Um, so it's not necessarily our job in in our classrooms to talk about this but i personally believe that we need to find space and time inside of our curriculum to, to talk about these issues. And where are you on that? I mean, how, how do we find in your compressed eight week time period of teaching <laughs> composition or whatever we're teaching, how, how do we find time and space to make this important to our students as well as, as our faculty? Well, I mean, a lot of it is, is helping people again, uh, the way I see my job is helping people um, like, making the knowledge available and the space available to, to talk about and think about it and helping mm-hmm. them come to their own conclusions. You know, like if you, uh, like I, you know, I, I never say to anyone, don't use Facebook or, you know, don't use Instagram or, you know, um, even I don't say to my students, don't use Google. Um, you know, but I, I, you know, we talk about 
um, what are some of the, you know, as you said, affordances, you know, what are some of the, um, the things we lose um, in what cases where is a particular platform or tool better? In what cases is it worse? You know, we're having an interesting discussion in my class right now about Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Caulfield's, uh, you know, four movies. Yeah. And, you know, Caulfield um, advocates using Wikipedia as part of a, a fact checking, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as a way to weed out misinformation, you know, but for years and years and years, my students have been told never, ever, ever, never. Oh, and they still are. Right. a conversation <laughs> with a student about this on Twitter where he said, no, no good teacher would recommend using Wikipedia. Like, ah, workshop that Brian Lamb just gave here at the University of Guadalajara about this or, or what Mike's doing and all these other people. So it's still happening in their classrooms. Yeah. Just I, not mean, I, I had to, um, you know, and they're still operating with the, you know, .org or .edu kind of myth. Yeah. And I had to um, sort of back channel a student and say, well, you know, like, because he said, I mean, and he was very adamant about you should never use it. And no good teacher, you know, right. as you said, would because ever that's advocate. Because have been told since high school or yeah. higher elementary high school, I guess I'm aging myself here. Yeah. And I had to back channel him and say, well, you know. Uh, I'm not sure that absolutes are like the best thing we should be doing. Mm -hmm. Like, there's some cases where it is a, I mean, it's got us, as with many other things, it's got its problems and limitations. Right. We want them to um, dig deeper, but it yeah. doesn't mean exclude Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the, there's a, often a debate out inside and outside of writing classes because um, too, too often, teachers who aren't writing teachers say, I don't have time or it's not my job to teach mm -hmm. students to be writers. Mm -hmm. And most composition people will tell you, you know, will um, cringe when they hear that assertion. Okay. Because, um, you know, if nothing else, then part of teaching a particular class is showing people what writing in that discipline mm -hmm. looks like. Mm -hmm. And for lots of reasons, that can't only be the domain of a composition teacher. Right. Well, we've gotten into a stage where, you know, that is also true in many ways about technology, about misinformation and things like that. So it can't be because it crosses so many boundaries. It can't just be that, well, I don't have time in my class to talk about the ethics of this. Right. Or I don't have time in my class to talk about technology or I don't, you know, like we don't really have that luxury anymore if we're going to really um do justice to our students. Um, and I think in my classes, I mean, I, I often get weird looks because I'm getting my students writing on blogs for computer science class. Yeah. And, and I had this, I had this, Maria Fernanda was awesome. She wrote poetry and short stories about programming in C++, which blew my brain out. But um, I do have time. I know I'm doing it and it's working and the students are still learning the content and I can find the time and, and I think my students aren't writing, you know, sonnets or, or well, actually she did. Yeah. In general, they're not writing great prose, but they're learning to communicate about their discipline, which I think is really, really important. In our institution, we call these the transversal um, skills uh, of written communication, oral communication, citizenship, uh, ethics. And I think they need to be in all the classes, but Often in higher ed, we compartmentalize our own classes that I'm just teaching this. Yeah. 
and I, I have no reason to put this other content in my side, my classroom. And I think you're right. I don't, I don't think we can keep going down that path as a society. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree. So you can teach computer science. <laughs> well, you're teaching a computer lab. Well, you know, I've, I've had, uh, you know, I was just at uh, uh, um, Kalamazoo College, um, which is a, a liberal arts college uh, in Michigan. And I, I met with a couple of computer science classes. I mean, it was like a, a real thrill for me. Cool. But, you know, they were talking about, you know, a lot of the, the same stuff, you know, about um, drones and about, um, you know, uh, about uh, extracting people's data. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, you know, I was I I had a little bit of reluctance when I got invited. I was like, they're going to like, it. yeah, <laughs> like I, I teach I teach comp at a community college. Right. They don't really care what I think. Um, but you know, we had some great discussions. Cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think the students appreciate it too, Chris. Um, I went through my teaching evaluations and, and I asked my students actually, if they can to write me something that's not just inside that teaching evaluation block about the course and the one that I was teaching this uh, topics course that I involved you a little bit. And they, they said, we're always focusing on the tech and and the technology and the building things and constructing things and projects. And this is the only course in my whole degree, because some of them are graduating, that we talked about the ethics of my degree program. And so I'm happy that I'm able to give that to them um, because I think it's just more fascinating as well anyway. Yeah. It also would bring a little tear to my eye that you're the only one. You know? <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's, again, that people are bad, but yeah. I think... I think we just we compartmentalize that it's it's not my problem or it's not well not necessarily not my problem but it's not my it's not my responsibility or authority to talk about these things inside of my analysis of algorithms class or artificial intelligence class or or computer graphics class or whatever the class is about yeah and I don't I don't agree with that but um, I think most faculty across all institutions tend to just teach their content we got to get through the content yeah well wow so what are you going to do next week in victoria well uh i'm team teaching a, a digital humanities class with uh with chris friend um it's kind of his uh his gig and i'm I, I, I'm, I'm hanging out with him which i'm really looking forward to yeah. uh you chris know does great work chris does some really cool work uh you know i imagine we'll talk about some of these same things that we talked about today you know like Digital redlining, like tech in the classroom, like you know what what is the um, you know what is the proper sort of way to to incorporate some of these things into your classrooms. Um, Maybe you'll put out a new hybrid product pedagogy podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'm eagerly anticipating <laughs> another episode. We got uh, a big raise that to my feet. I haven't heard it for a while. Hang yeah, on with a little busy, finger wagon guy, but he does a lot of good work, and I really love the work he does there as well as the, the hybrid pedagogy site. Um, yeah, Chris does great work. So this gave me an excuse to include that in the show notes as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Well, enjoy Victoria. It's my hometown. Um, we'll have to talk offline and see if I can give you any suggestions of things yeah. to do while you're there for the week. I'm jealous because I haven't been back home for a while. And uh, thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Um, this is always a, an excuse for me to get to hang out with cool people and talk. And uh, if people want to follow your work online, where should they find you, Chris? So as much as I, I complain about online, I, I do a lot of 
um, spouting off in public on Twitter. Uh, I can be found at Hypervisible. Um, and that links to my website where you know, right. um, some of my writing and, and podcasts and stuff like that are. That's the best place to find Chris. And then I'll send all the links in the show notes and uh, get this out very soon, pronto. Well, have a good for having have, me. Have really an awesome trip to Victoria, Chris. I, is, I really appreciate you taking out time to talk about this, and we'll be talking again soon. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Ken. Awesome. Thanks. The Flip Learning Network is the original online hub of the Flip Learning community. We are a not-for-profit organization whose mission includes providing access to a wealth of tools, resources, and professional development opportunities. We hope to help educators build on the possibilities inherent in flip learning and to explore evolving student-centered instructional practices. We invite educators everywhere to explore the resources available at fliplearning.org and to contribute to the discussion through comments, questions, and by submitting your own posts. Indeed, the site is built on the contributions from flipped educators like yourself who write blog posts. We also encourage you to join us on Slack where we have an ongoing dialogue. More information on the site about that. You can help support the FLN by making your purchases through our Amazon.com affiliate link at fliplearning.org Amazon, or you can support us directly on a monthly basis as a patron at Patreon. The short link for that is fliplearning.org slash Patreon. Thank you.